Okay, so <laughs> welcome to the first ever recording of the Talking Eds podcast. Um, and our first guest today is Rabbi Lewis from Brighton, a local Chabad rabbi who I've known for many years. I'm very excited to speak with you. Um, rabbi Lewis, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me to um, be this groundbreaking, revolutionary uh, new podcast. I wish you a lot of luck with it, thank a lot you. of success with it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to, to be able to talk to you and to be part of this. Um, yeah, so introduce myself. I My name is Zalman and I am the director of a Jewish student center here in Brighton called Chabad, as you said. And uh, I'm also chaplain at Sussex Uni and Brighton Uni. So been supporting Jewish students for 18 years in, in the city of Brighton and Hove. Awesome. Um, just a couple of questions just to get to know who you are a little bit and also what Chabad means. Um, so how long have you been a rabbi? And discuss rabbinical school because I personally know very little about it. I'd like to learn more. I'm used to uh, education from a hard sciences perspective as opposed to any spiritual or theological um, education. I'd love to hear more about it. Okay, so it's very interesting that you asked me this because my year 10 teacher actually just died over the weekend. I'm sorry to hear that. And was buried in Jerusalem um, just on Monday. And I actually wrote an article because I was, the family had decided, family live in London, and the, the family had decided, um, he's originally from Israel, and, all, and he was 68, the youngest of all of his siblings, and most of his siblings, older siblings are still alive. And they couldn't obviously fly to the UK, they're elderly, um, his sisters in their 80s. So the fam his, his children who live around the, um, around the world, and his wife decided that they would sit the week of Shiva, the traditional week of mourning, um, in Israel. So I was a bit frustrated that I didn't get the chance to go into London and go into his, see his, his, his son and his wife and family and give them some comfort. So I wrote this article during the funeral. Um, I, just, I just started writing my thoughts and it blossomed into a whole article. So it's really on my mind right now. What was my education? What was it like? I mean, you, as you say, it, it's so vastly different. As you as you suspect from the type of education that you're pro that you're probably familiar with, um, but it's on my mind right now because you just reflect on the fact that our our by the time I was in year ten, the vast majority of my day um, was studying Talmud, <laughs> um, fourth fifth century Jewish scholarship. That was that was the staple of my daily studies in school. In, in London, in a, in a school in London. So something very, very different. In fact, this teacher, he lived in London for 40 years, but he could barely speak English. The, the, the teachers, the, the lessons were all in Yiddish. Okay, so I grew up in London, you can hear. <laughs> I'm about as British as a religious Jew can get. And uh, my school lessons as a 14-year-old as were all in Yiddish in a different language. Um, so yeah, something very, very different. So I've been a, as I said, we, we, we've been in Brighton for 18 years. My, uh, I met my wife in New York in 2002, and we got married. She's originally from California, so we got married in California. And then we moved to Brighton on the 1st of January 2004. I can remember, I'll never forget the date, because British Airways had no staff in the airport, because it was New Year's Day. So there was... Uh, 
um, no one to unload our suitcases. So we waited for about an hour for our suitcases until I guess the one person working that day finally offloaded our suitcases. So we've been in Brighton for 18 years. We came actually to do a lot of different things within the Jewish community as well as supporting Jewish students, but very quickly um, um, migrated towards supporting students. Um, this is actually a funny thing that I actually mentioned to somebody yesterday. Somebody had called me about something and this came up in conversation. If somebody would have said to me 18 years ago, would you want, well, 18 and a half years ago, would you want to work full time with students? My answer would have been a flat out no. I can fully understand why. Yeah, go on, let's hear. I mean, I've had at this point seven and a half years experience in the university system and in that time I've been a student, I've been a lecturer, I've been a researcher and knowing who I was as a student I wouldn't want to deal with me either. Okay so you're gonna laugh because that wasn't the reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> the reason was because I actually was very intimidated. Really? I actually thought student, students were intelligent. This is being recorded right? This is being recorded. I actually found it very, the thought of having to engage with people who were educated in a whole area, as I said earlier, in a whole area of the world that I'm not familiar with, which we'll come back to later, perhaps, if we have time. Um, I found it very overwhelming. Working with students who are familiar with topics that, you know, you start naming, naming, naming to me classics or naming to me um, any era of philosophy's giants, and I would have been completely out of touch with with anything you were referring to um, I found it very intimidating um, so it's actually interesting that when I came to Brighton my job was broader than just working with students and within two years I just navigated straight towards the students and that became our primary focus and it has been ever since fantastic um, do you want to explore the education for, for uh, as well or, or, or just the fact that I spent most of my time studying in Yiddish Talmudic texts. I mean, I'd actually like to dive into um, sort of some of the background about Yiddish, because Yiddish, I mean, Yiddish is not Hebrew, obviously, but Yiddish as a language is actually a much more Eastern European sort of um, originated language. Um, and historically, a lot of Jewish orthodoxy stems from Eastern Europe as well. So. You are a Lubavitch rabbi, which stems from the Russian town, I want to get this pronunciation right, Lubavitchy? Something like that. Something yeah, like you've that. you've done a good job. Which I only found out recently, and I love this, literally means town of love. Correct. Which is very, very heartwarming. Um, so maybe expand around Lubavitch Judaism as compared to some other orthodoxy of Judaism. So some people may be more familiar with uh, Jewish men in the long cloaks and the strimals, the big fur hat, um, referred to as Haredi. Is that, I mean, is that correct? Or am I misinterpreting this? No, Haredi means uh, something along those lines. Right. But actually, more specifically, the, the, the style dress that you've just, you've just referred to is a segment of what people often refer to as Haredi but more specifically Hasidic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Hasidic movement or Hasidim. Um, so the Haredi world, which is a term uh, that describes ultra-Orthodoxy 
for lack of a better term, even though I don't like the term, and in general I don't like labels, but uh, I mean that's that's the term that's used, um, actually has within it two main blocks, if you want, the 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 Lithuanian school of thought, which is the non-Hasidic movement of 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 of, uh, of orthodoxy, and then the the Hasidic movement, which is inspired by specific teachings which weren't which weren't studied by mainstream orthodoxy um going back two three hundred years um so you talk about the town of Lubavitch and the language of yiddish and all of that so yiddish itself is a language that just evolved over time because the vast majority of citizens of eastern europe not just jews but citizens of eastern europe couldn't read or write whereas jews often also although they all uh, they often also couldn't read or write their local language but they could speak it because that was the language that was spoken but they could read and write hebrew because of their prayers and their study even the most simple um jew with with very little education could could read basic hebrew in fact it's fascinating that mainst- that the concept of education for all is a fundamental Jewish principle that that even Maimonides 800 years ago codifies as a, as a, as a fundamental pr- principle based on Talmud that every single Jew, um, irrelevant of background, it, it needs to the community has to provide them with education. So so Jews could read and write Hebrew, but they couldn't read or write the local language, and as a result, speaking the local language evolved into a hybrid of Hebrew with the phonetics of Hebrew the la- and, and, and the reading and the writing of Hebrew with using the spoken language. It's a bit like if you imagine that you, you, you could, if, if you could only speak Hebrew or only, uh, sorry, if you could only read or write Hebrew or read or write Arabic, but you could, you could speak English fluently, you might write English in Arabic, in, in Arabic text or in Hebrew. That's Trans- what transliterating it. Tra- basically, transli- that's exactly what that and that's the origin of Yiddish. It was a transliteration that just took off and it became a whole language of itself, peppered with Hebrew, uh, Jewish expressions, etc. But yeah, it's 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 old. It's actually old German. Right. It's quite funny how in um, especially in comedy, um, a lot of Yiddishisms make their way into like even native English speakers lexicon. It can be very funny, like when you hear someone just like exclaim, "Oh, Gavald," you know, and you get these like classic Yiddishisms that have that have become humorous but ingrained in speech. I ne- I never studied German. I don't know any German. Yeah, hmm. but if you give me a German text, I could I could I could make sense of it because it's so similar to to Yiddish. In fact, <laughs> there's a I'll tell you a funny story. There was a local there was a lady locally who had a problem with her printer that it was printing in 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 german the settings had all come up in german and she couldn't figure out how to translate it in order to figure out how to resolve this problem and how to set up she was trying to set it connected to the wi-fi and she posted on social media on facebook this page that her printer printed in german and I saw it and I immediately sent her a message. Your printer has just printed out the instructions for how anyone could access your printer remotely. And somebody could literally send a few books to your printer now and your printer will just print and print and print. You might want to take your page off social media. It was a, it was a, it was a funny laugh in the fact that she didn't realize what she was printing. I understood what she was printing, not because I speak or read German, but because of my knowledge of Yiddish. 
Because you speak Yiddish and Hebrew as well as clearly English. Yeah. Any other any other things no. to add to your belt? No, no just the no. three. I did try French a little bit, but not very successfully. Oh, I think we've all tried French at one point and realised that it's it's very difficult. But go, going back to, to to where we were heading to with the, as far as um, the 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 background of Chabad and this town of Lubavitch, etc. So the 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 history of European Jewry, of Eastern European Jewry, is, is such an essential part of this conversation because uh, it, it, very, very colourful, very lively, very wonderful. Um, hundreds of years of Jewish history in the region of, of Poland, Ukraine, Russia. You know, we're sitting here today um, in, in, in the shadow, I guess, of, of what's going on in, with the conflict in, in, in Ukraine at the moment. And just consider you, I mean, look up for those who are not familiar, the concept of the Pale of Settlement, which was um, late 18th century, where, where Jews were banned from living in, 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 in a huge part of Russia and, and banned to and, and expelled to live in, in certain restricted regions on the border of, uh, in the areas of Belarus, Poland, um, Moldova, and, and south, south, southwestern Russia. And it's interesting that the town of Lubavitch itself, this village, it's actually a, a tiny pickle of a village. <laughs> if you, if you, it would be a compliment to call it anything but that. And um, this this little village is actually in the Smolensk region, which is outside the Pale of Settlement. So it's interesting that it was still a very Jewish village, even during the time when Jews were officially not supposed to be living in this, in, in, in that region. But so obviously the Pale of Settlement is a little bit more nuanced than just to say all Jews lived only there and that was it because there were obviously Jewish communities outside the Pale of Settlement. But that region, so not far from Minsk, so if you look halfway between Minsk and Moscow, um, 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 looking at the, the, that area of Smolensk um, and, and going a little bit further west, these, the, the, that, that whole region was peppered in towns of religious Jews. Every every town, every village, every 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 city. You're talking about, you know, where were these six million Jews who were murdered? Where did where did they come from? Where did they live? And the vast majority of them lived in that region, Poland, and and the Pale of Settlement. There were there were. This is besides for the mass immigration under Tsarist persecutions in the 1860s, 1880s. In fact, my father's family. So my father was born in Manchester. His family originate five generations in the UK. His mother's father came to England from, from Poland, from Lodge. But um, his, his father's family, he, we, we, I'm a fifth generation Brit, because they, they, they fled already in the 1860s, 1870s, and came to Blackpool and settled in the northeast of England, um, in the northwest in the Manchester area. And... Um, yeah, so just the knowledge of that whole region and, 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 and its influence. So there were two major events 400 years ago, Bogdan Khmelnytsky and, and the famous uh, false messiah in Turkey, um, 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 Shabtai Tzvi. These two devastating events, you know, I'll just mention them briefly, but they had a huge influence and a negative impact in European Jewry. Um, in the aftermath of these events, a rabbi called Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov was born. And he understood that you needed an injection, you needed something different. The, the, the European Jewry were impoverished, had just been devastated, decimated by these major events of pogroms, killing 
whole towns and villages of Jews. And uh, the survivors were, were licking their wounds and, and trying to figure out where to go and what to do. You know, how do you rebuild? And the Baal Shem Tov understood that things have to change. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you engage people in, in, in something different? How do you inspire people? How do you lift people's spirits in the aftermath of that, such devastation? There's a famous conversation that Rabbi Yisrael may allow, a former chief rabbi of Israel, whose son is now chief rabbi of Israel. He's, he's still alive. He's in his 80s. He's, he was a youngest survivor of Buchenwald. He famously survived because his brother, fascinating stories themselves, and um, both, both he and his brother both wrote their biographies. Um, so he famously had an interview with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You talk about the name Lubavitch, so the last leader of the Chabad movement passed away in 1994. Um, so he had a meeting with, this, with the Rebbe, and the Rebbe voiced his frustration at what seemed to be a lack of, of activism in, 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 in modern Israel. And the Rebbe says to him, you know, why is it Jews historically have been activists? Jews have wanted to change the world. And here you have people who, who, who just want to settle down and just, just, you know, maybe rebuild their lives in, 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 a, in, in transported after the Holocaust to Israel. And that's it. And just, you know, hunker down and live family life in, in, a, very, in a very almost depressed way. And the rabbi asked him, you know, what's, what's your chief rabbi of Israel? Well, he, at the time, I think it was chief rabbi. No, this is even earlier. I don't remember exactly when the conversation was, perhaps even before he became chief rabbi. But the rabbi said to him, I think even as a rabbi who's a Holocaust survivor, you know, how do you understand um, the lack of, of, of engagement, of, of, of that lack of activism? And he said, he describes, I mean, he writes this in this book, and he said it many times in speeches, but he basically turned around to the rabbi and he said, people are tired. We're exhausted. Jews just don't have energy. We've been fighting for our survival for hundreds of years. We were persecuted everywhere we went. And I think the Baal Shem Tov was born into a similar era 250, 300 years earlier, where Jews were tired. They were fed up. They'd been decimated too many times and they were just so exhausted. And there was no inspiration. The rabbinic leadership didn't know how to inspire. Community leaders didn't know how to inspire. The Baal Shem Tov chose a number of avenues in order to change this depressing trajectory. And one of them was to, to, to celebrate the value of every human being and of every Jew. And just, just to send the message that you're all of value and God wants your service and you are important. And just because you're a simple peasant farmer doesn't mean you don't have a positive contribution to God's world. And a, another thing that he did was that he took the classics of Kabbalistic teaching, which until that point were only studied exclusively by scholars for, for, hundred, for many hundreds of years, already in the times of the Talmud. The concepts of the Zohar and Kabbalah and, and esoteric Jewish mysticism was always there. It's, 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 it's doc, it, was, it was the same teachings from the same Talmudic area. In fact, if you compare the language of the Zohar and the language of Talmud, they're very similar with very similar names. It's, a very, it's the same era. Although the Zohar wasn't transcribed in its, in, in its modern text that we have today until 15th, 16th century, but its origin, its origin of the conversations all originate from the times of the Talmud in 3rd, 4th, 5th century. Um, so this mysticism wasn't studied for 
13, 1400 years. And the Baal Shem Tov said, this mysticism actually has the antidote, it actually has the medicine, it actually has the, the trick to actually revive Jewry. And um, European Jewry, in, in, after the passing of the Baal Shem Tov, actually split in two schools of thought. The school of thought that still held on to its pre-Baal Shem Tov philosophy of mysticism is an exclusive study. Most people should just study Jewish law, just study Talmud, forget philosophy, do what you're supposed to do, study the text that tells you how to do what you're supposed to do, and that's it, and don't delve into philosophy, it's unnecessary. And the school of thought that was influenced by the Baal Shem Tov, which is Hasidism, of which Lubavitch Chabad is one branch. Okay, so you, the, the difference between Hasidism and Haredi, Haredi today encompasses both movements, um, often referring to one or the other. Hasidism is exclusively those who have been influenced by the, by the Baal Shem Tov. Following the Baal Shem Tov, his student, the Magad of Mezrich, branched out further, built on that further, and his students basically spread the Hasidic movement right across the Pale of Settlement. Pale of Settlement wasn't, it was just starting then, but across that whole region, and it, it influenced European Jewry in a massive way. Perhaps not, not so much towards Lithuania, but uh, which, which held on to its more traditional um, Vilna being the home of the non-Hasidic religious Jewish community. But um, yeah, so the, 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 actually the Hasidic movement was born out of a reaction to how, how do you inspire people? Which is a conversation we should be having today as well. What, what, what tricks are there that we can inspire young people with? I think it's really interesting. I'm learning a huge amount and I'm looking at some of the questions that I wrote before this conversation and realizing that it was totally unnecessary because you have so much breadth of knowledge on this, um, on so many things that a simple question is not going to go nearly as far as what you've just done. Um, I think it's really interesting what you've said about the Jewish people just being tired and wanting a place to settle down after devastating events. It's like, leave us alone. With, we just want to sit down at this point. Um, there's, a, there's a thought that I heard recently that part of the reason so many Jewish people go into comedy writing is because it's a... Including the president of Ukraine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's an active way to make light of suffering and obviously be humorous about it, to remember it, but to not be perpetually depressed by it, which is very interesting. I don't know if you have any expansion on that. I, I, I love the idea that it's like, okay, we're tired, we're sick, but we're going to make light of it because we're not going to get bogged down in this depression. Self-depreciating humor in order to help us get through it, that black humor, Jewish comedians are, are so known for that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, I'm trying to absorb everything you've just said and try and think of a, a response, but I could sit here and just listen to you speak about history for hours. Um, I would like to ask some other questions just away from history, perhaps. Um, perhaps more, more personal questions about you and Judaism in the 21st century, in the year 2022. Um, one thing that I've been curious about, I remember as a kid, you know, going to synagogue on a Friday, there's usually, you know, a decent group of regular people who go there, they make up the minion, which is ten men, which is required for a certain blessing, but it seems numbers dwindle in terms of spirituality, not just in Judaism, but across the board at this point. I guess, 
A question I wonder is, why is that, and why do people perhaps see spirituality or Judaism or any organised religion as something on the back burner, whereas 50, 60 years ago it was much more of an ingrained communal ide ideology? Yeah, a, a, a very, a very, uh, a very broad question because it's 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 got it it's got so many complexities to it. So it's important to to, to realize first of all there is a polarization in in religious communities um, in the UK perhaps not so much in mainstream religion, but certainly happening in in the Jewish community and in the, the Muslim communities. In in the United States, it's happening in in Christian communities as well, where the middle ground basic traditional regular attenders who didn't engage too much are either moving right or left either away from religious observance or much more intensely into religious observance um i believe that former chief rabbi jacobovitz um spoke about this in the 80s and spoke about this polarization that was already taking hold as far back as then and, and he predicted it would get more intense and 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 it, it, it was right it has happened um one of the interesting things that's happened um in 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 the jewish in a british jewish community um which in a way i guess can be celebrated is the fact that smaller towns that didn't have a strong infrastructure didn't service those who were going right because they didn't have a strong infrastructure. So a city like Brighton or Portsmouth or so many other outlying cities outside the large centres of Jewish life of London and Manchester um, dwindled because those who were going right wanted something more engaging, wanted something more, um, more fulfilling and moved to larger Jewish communities. They either moved to London or to Manchester or even to Israel, to large Jewish communities in Israel. Um, so actually the decline of Jewish life in cities like Brighton doesn't necessarily spell doom for Jewish life. It might spell doom for local Jewish life, but a lot of its former participants have actually moved on somewhere else and their families are embracing more engaging Judaism. So it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, within the Jewish community that numbers are falling. It means that the dynamics are changing. And it's even economically. If you think about it, um, 50, 60 years ago, if you had a certain skill and you needed a job, you went wherever the job was because that, that was the nature of economics back then. And if your job was Margate, then you became a member of a synagogue in Margate because you had no choice but to move to Margate or, or Exeter or you know any of these outlying small towns. They had a small community made up primarily of people who either had been there for a long, long time or people who had come there because economically they had no choice. Today we have a choice. Today, if you have a skill, you find somewhere where you want to live, where your skill can be serviced. Very few people, very few religious Jews or traditional Jews would move somewhere for a job if the community support system that they want doesn't exist there. So it's actually a good thing. Yeah, the, the, the dynamics changes, and that's, that's a reflection of the, the way the world has changed. But I think it's also right that we should also consider the, the, the problems, <laughs> the difficulties that you highlighted. Um, I think especially in the last couple of years, everyone has actively looked for more ways to overcome limitations. Um, one really nice thing I remember from, I think it was early 
2020, and you'll correct me on this, is that uh, your son wasn't able to go to a synagogue to do his bar mitzvah, his rite of passage at the age of 13 years old. And this actually made the news, and I remember seeing it, it was really, really exciting for we, me. We agreed we, we wouldn't use the C word. We're not going to use the C word, which is why I'm actively dancing around it. But your son live broadcast his bar mitzvah. That's right. And yeah. actually had quite a large attendance. A few hundred people. Despite... Thankfully, thankfully, I didn't have to have to pay for anyone's dinner. Oh, that must have been... Uh... <laughs> That must have been a blessing in disguise there, but but you're right. The, the dynamics and and it's not just because of 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 the lockdowns and the restrictions in the last two years. It's also so many other factors as well. And 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 you touched on this in your question. Um, social media, mobile phones, so many other things. It's very interesting. I'll 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 tell you just just an interesting antidote. Uh, um, just to uh, anecdote. Just to just to just to highlight this point. Um, and this is a phenomenon that I've seen over a number of years already, that I get contacted by somebody who says to me, Rabbi, I'd like to convert. Can I meet you? And of course, you know, meeting. It's, you, I'm t I'm, I'm, this, the, these questions are usually coming just because of the nature of my work. I'm talking about from the university community. So I'll sit in a cafe on campus and I'll start speaking to them. And it becomes very obvious very quickly to me that they are enamored by Jewish community. They see their Jewish peers having a sense of community, having a sense of belonging. They know that their Jewish friends have somewhere to go on a Friday night where they can have a dinner together with 20, 30 people. They can connect with something. They're lonely. They're really, really lonely. People are just so lonely. And it becomes obvious to me very, very quickly that the vast majority of these requests are coming from people who want to become Jewish, not because they connect with Jewish theology, not because they connect with Jewish philosophy, not because they connect with Jewish practice, not because the Old Testament or Jewish law resonates with them, simply because they want the sense of belonging because they're so lonely. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. When my parents, who were both born in South Africa, emigrated to the UK in, I think it was 1989, you know, they came here knowing no one, but under the comfort of the fact that they could come in, find the local Jewish community, and immediately there is a sense of peerage and a structure around them. So, you know, you have friends wherever you go in the world. And as dwindled in the numbers, one might think, Judaism does suffuse over the entire world. Uh, so there is a community. Sort of, you throw a dart on the map, there'll be a community there. Yeah. Which, which brings me to, to, to the answer to your question. What, what can be done to stem the tide of, of, of apathy? I think the answer is do podcasts like this and help people realize that actually you don't have to be lonely sitting playing Candy Crush on your phone all day long at home feeling like you've got no purpose, like you've got no sense of belonging to, to something. Um, um, social media and, and, and computers and, and modern technology is a brilliant thing when it's used to bring people together. But when it's used to, to promote isolation, it's devastating. And I say this even not just from a religious perspective. Uh, as, 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 a, as a chaplain at university, I, I, I say this not just from a religious perspective, but also from a a very practical perspective of just seeing how people are lonely and people are suffering. And I say, actually, 
if you spend all day long at home playing Wordle on your phone, well, you can't play Wordle all day long. Okay, I get that. But, um, um, you know, just looking at your phone, doing pointless things, scrolling through Instagram all day long, you're going to get lonely. Just waiting it, for that little intermittent hit of dopamine from finishing a level of Candy Crush. And it's fascinating because if you listen to experts who are critical of social media, they, they, they show you clear evidence. And, you know, I've listened to this, this stuff. They show you clear evidence how these social media giants are investing not millions, but perhaps even billions, into how they can get you to get that 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 energy rush um, um, from 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 something stupid on your phone. WhatsApp changing those grey checks to turning blue was a stroke of genius to make you addicted to your handset. It's very depressing it, when you stare at it and it never changes. And people are getting depressed because they have no sense of belonging. So, you know, I'm not necessarily going to sit here and use that as a, a way of advocating that people should connect religiously. Um, I think there is, there, there is, there is an element of, of, of truth to that as well, and I think people should consider that too. But even on the most basic level, I would encourage people to get out, socialize, interact with people, um, um, you know, become, become sociable people. I was listening to... There's a judge on the Michigan Supreme Court who's blind, who was blind from birth. I was listening to an interview of his on a podcast um, uh, recently, and he, he, he's extremely critical of, of, of the lockdowns. And he says, we have to go back to, to, to engaging people with people because that's who we are. We are sociable beings. And, and being isolated and sitting at home um, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to get political about this, um, but, but uh, you know, he, he's a judge. He's entitled to get political and then use his position as a judge to influence. But um, I think a lot of people who have supported the extreme lockdowns are content to be lonely and they don't even realize they are lonely. Now, that's fine if you're in your 50s and 60s and you're semi-retired or you can work from home and you're content in puttering around the house and not doing much and ordering things on Amazon. But if you're a young, sociable person in your late teens or your 20s and you still need to feed that social side of you, it's not healthy. It's, 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 it's not a good very thing. very devastating. Um, I feel so bad for the students who, you know, they're in their late teens, early 20s who have perhaps only just started university or, you know, in the second or third year of their degree, throughout isolation, having to do things online, how unmotivating it is to do this and how easy it is to slip into, like, a sense of apathy or a sense of almost nihilism about the entire thing. For me, one of the, the best thing about my degree was the amount of people I had around me. Um, and... So definitely, the the idea of segregation or isolation is hugely unhealthy and only drives depression after that. But I think I think I think we should use this as a platform to encourage people. If if, if somebody's listening to this, get out. You yeah. can. No, it's legal. Yeah, <laughs> you're allowed to go and do it. Ask someone <laughs> if you can sit with them in a cafe if you don't know them. Yeah, just buy them a cup of coffee and have a chat. Yeah, 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 it's the right thing to do. We need we need that social interaction. Um, but as far as as far as religion, um, I go back to what I was saying earlier about the Baal Shem Tov. Um, there is a way to do it. It demands um, a lot of effort. 
It demands creativity. Um, it, it demands good business-like strategies. But but um, I think people people want to connect. People people want to 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 identify. People want to um, um, feel a, a sense of spiritual belonging. People are sp searching spiritual uh, spiritually. Um, um, Carl Jung has a famous letter that he wrote to the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, in which he describes um, a fascinating story. I don't want to take up too much time telling it. We could talk about it another time. Um, where he, he's writing a letter. He got he got this letter six months before he died in 1960-61, um, um, thanking him for a treatment that he gave to somebody 30 years earlier, an American who had traveled to Europe to get treatment from Carl Jung and had traveled back to America and had spoken about his experiences with Carl Jung. And that was the trigger for the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this co-founder 30 years later writes to Carl Jung, I want you to know your impact of, 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 of your treatment that you gave this fellow 30 years ago. It, it did the trick. Well, it actually didn't help the poor fellow because he was an addict, unfortunately. And uh, um, um, although he had his ups and downs, after, uh, some ups afterwards, but uh, never fully recovered. But uh, this fellow writes to Carl Jung, your, 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 your treatment actually served the basis for, for the founding of this phenomenal movement, which this is 1960. Can you imagine if Carl Jung would have got this letter in 2022? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the millions of people who have been helped by this treatment. Um, in the letter, Carl Jung writes that the, 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 the human being thirsts spirituality. And he says, if we don't feed that spirituality, you can end up searching in, in weird and wonderful places, in desperation. In fact, he even famously says, spiritum contra spiritus. He says, you confuse spirituality, the spirit of your soul, with the spirit of alcohol. And that's what an addict is, 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 is looking for. In fact, according to, um, according to this idea, many, many experts say that, that addicts are more spiritual. Almost worshipping... Well, they're, they're looking they're for addicted they're, to. They're, des they're desperately searching, searching for something, and they become addicted to something unhealthy because they're misguided, because they can't find what they're actually looking for. But they're searching, and and people are searching. And the question is, how do you? Um, hey, if if the alcohol in industry can spend, I don't know how many billions on 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 providing this these unhealthy ways of serving, of filling your spiritual desires and your spiritual wantings and your spiritual needs, then uh, why can't religion do the same thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not sitting here encouraging people to become hardcore, rigid, uh, religious people, but just to encourage the idea of the community embracing the spirituality, like you know fanaticism is a good thing why not well, fanaticism can be a good thing can be a bad um, thing no but you're right um mind you i think i am a bit of a fanatic and uh, if somebody says to me we all have our fanatical they, views yeah they want to go if somebody tells me they want to go on a religious journey um um equivalent to getting completely stoned but from a completely different um perspective without without the stimulants of alcohol or drugs um, yeah, I'd say come along with me, or let me come along with you. Let's mm -hmm. go on an exciting journey together. Um, but 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 you're right. Um, the, the main point that I'm making is people should be open to taking positive steps towards filling up the, their purpose, um, finding purpose. Um, waking up in the morning is God's way of saying you matter. 
birth is God's way of saying you matter. The fact that someone exists is because God has a purpose for them. And we should seek that purpose, seek that purpose and try and make the world a better place and try and do good things to fulfill that. And, um, you know, you talk about the fact that the name of the movement that I represent, Chabad and Lubavitch, ironically, the two words are almost um, com uh, completely paradoxical uh, and a, a, a dichotomy because the term Chabad as, as you discovered in your research, expresses a deep um, intellectual philosophy based on the teachings of, of, of Jewish mysticism. And the movement was born, well, it, it, the movement was, was for, for 150 years, its primary location was in this little village in Russia, which is called, as you said earlier, this town of love. So which is it? The deep intellectual philosophy? Or is it just the loving, embracing openness of a town that even named itself Lubavitch, love people. And, and the answer is both. Um, um, to, be able, to be able to connect, um, um, to, to be able to recognize the value of people is directly linked to recognizing the deep philosophy of, of, of purpose. Um, I, you don't have to be a deep philosopher to have purpose, though philosophy will explain that purpose. <laughs> and the two work hand in hand. Yes, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life then. And if what you love is pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, as the name Chabad sort of says, like you, you're living both sides of that, and I'm sure it's a very content and happy living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I want to ask a couple of maybe much smaller questions, because we've been talking for the best part of an hour, and frankly I could continue this conversation for the entire day, because it's brilliant. But... I want to ask you some random questions about yourself. So, obviously you're a rabbi, you do a lot of work for the university, but what hobbies do you have outside of, outside of all of that? What's something, what's something you do to bring yourself joy in your free time? Time for, for hobbies? I have eight children, there is no time for hobbies. <laughs> there should be something. What about preceding the eight children? Uh, funny, um, it's very interesting because I, 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 I I don't really, I, I never really developed hobbies. I, I was into different things, but again, you know, going back to what we said right at the beginning of the conversation, my education and the influence of, of, of the environment that I grew up in was such that we, 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 we were grounded in a sense of purpose that really defined our hobbies. So, for example, in this article that I mentioned earlier that I had written in memory of, 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 of my teacher who passed away this week, um, I, I, I describe as a 14-year-old using my lunch break to run across to a Jewish care day center that was right across the road from our school to use my lunch break. We were allowed to go out of school during lunch break. So I would run across the road. I would go into this building, run around the building. It was a day, a day center for elderly Jews who would come for various activities. And I would just, and, and you know, a lot of them were just meeting people, you know, lonely elderly people just sitting in lounges, just talking to each other, meeting, etc. And I would run around putting on tefillin, those black boxes. Um, don't know how many people listening to this podcast are familiar with what tefillin is, but go and Google it. Running around, finding these elderly men and asking them if they want to do a quick mitzvah, a quick good deed, a quick prayer, take you two, three minutes. I became obsessed with this. In the article, I explained, explained the background of why I became obsessed with it, which is I'm not going to um, bore you with the details of that now. But I literally became obsessed with this. This was a hobby of mine as a teenager. 
and of a few of my peers as well. And we would spend our breakfast breaks and lunch breaks. I got into trouble more than once in school of different levels of education um, because I came back after breakfast break, break too late or came back after lunch break too late because I literally was running around trying to get another Jew to do this mitzvah. So that I, I would say that was very much a hobby, which um, today... I don't have the same amount of time to run around as I used to, but yeah, it was, it was almost, I, I would say that was a hobby of mine to actually go and put on to fill in with people and give, give somebody an opportunity to do it, to have a quick prayer and have a meaningful moment with God. So yeah, it, it sounds a bit surreal. Well, I was into God. I wasn't into, I was into gardening. My mother, my mother has um, a, a small, but very nice garden that she looks after. She's always, she's always cared about her, her garden. And uh, as a kid, I, I, I did a lot of um, gardening with her. I planted tom tomatoes and strawberries. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, just the background of Chabad. So I had a, cl a classmate whose grandfather was one of the brains of the mass exodus of Russian Jews from, Ru from the Soviet Union after the Holocaust. So during the, um, during the Holocaust, many Polish Jews, including my wife's one of my wife's uh, uh, the grandfather one of, uh, my wife's one of my wife's grandfathers wow that was a bit of a twist um he 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 was from poland and he fled into russia and got arrested and sent to siberia which actually saved him the rest of his family were murdered um her, her mother's pet this is this is her mother's father her mother's mother actually came from a chabad family in russia and she escaped from Russia in 47. Basically, the Soviets announced in 47 that anyone who had come into Russia on a fake Polish passport, uh, on a Polish passport, any Polish citizen, any, any non-Russian who had come into Russia during the Holocaust fleeing from the Nazis, as long as they had a way of proving that they were not Russian, was allowed, were allowed to leave. At that time, the persecution of religious Jews in Russia was intense. Uh, religious Jews were being sent to Siberia um, already before the Holocaust. And it was a terrible time for religious Jews, and most religious Jews were running. So what they did was they set up a, a, an underground, making fake Polish passports, as if they had all been born in Poland and had escaped to Russia during the Holocaust, so that they can escape. And many of them successfully escaped, including my wife's grandmother and, her, and, and most of her siblings, bar one, and her, her, her parents and my wife's great-grandparents. They all escaped from Russia on these fake Polish passports. One of the brains for this movement was a Jew called Remendel Futterfuss. He later, his wife and, and children actually managed to escape. He didn't. He was arrested. He was sent to Siberia. He, served in, he was in Siberia for the best part of a decade. After he was released, he came to London. He lived in London for a couple of years, a number of years, and then he moved to Israel. Um, but his son grew up under the, the, the influence of this, this pioneering fighter for, for determination, the strength that these people had. His grandson was a classmate of mine. And this guy had come around to my house, this friend of mine had come around to my house, and I'd shown him the strawberries and the tomatoes that I was growing. We must have been 13 or 14. And he was all excited. And he went home and he told his dad, I want to grow tomatoes too. And he tells me in school, a few times he says to me, you know, my dad is growing tomatoes too. So I've got a friend who's competing with my hobby. And I figured, you know, how much is he growing? I've got six tomato plants in the garden, seven, and they're all growing, you know, I've got a bit of a harvest. And he kept saying to me, you have to come around, you have to come around. And one day I said, you know what, I'll come around. Remember, his, his father was born in Soviet Russia to, to this pioneering fighter. I walked into the garden and this man had literally built 
a tomato orchard. It was an area about eight feet by eight feet. Yeah? <laughs> two and a half meters by two and a half meters, a raised area that they had in the middle of the garden. He had a disabled brother. So they had around this raised area, they had an area where the wheelchair could go around. So this, this two and a half meter by two and a half meter um, raised garden thing, the entire thing was just tomato plants and he had built with bamboo sticks this orchard. <laughs> And he was, on the day that I came, he was just filling up these boxes with tomatoes that he was harvesting. And I was like, okay, I don't have a hobby. I just grow something. <laughs> you know, my, my hobby is something completely else. completely outclassed. I must say, orchard. yeah, but I must say, and I'm not just telling it to you because it's a funny story about hobbies and gardening, but also because, you know, I don't want this to sound like um, radio, uh, radio for gardening time. Um, it gives you a glimpse into the type of community that I was raised with survivors of the Gulag who were so influenced that it even affected the way they they spent their Sunday afternoons with their kids growing tomatoes. It, 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 I grew up in a different world, really. I mean, it's, it's my, my, my mother tells me of the fact that she, she uh, the synagogue that she went to, there were only two people that were elderly in the entire synagogue. You know, you, you ask about the fact that the, in, in Brighton, most synagogues, attendees are elderly. My mother grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a synagogue where there were only two elderly people in the synagogue, the rabbi and one other. Everyone else were survivors who had lost their parents, who were my grandparents' age. That was the entire community. The entire community was younger survivors raising families without grandpa and grandma because they were murdered. I'm sure what a good community that was for them at the time, having all of the people of the same age. I know how weird it was for me when you know, I was going to synagogue with my dad, so I was 11, 12, and I think the average age in the synagogue, if you exclude me, was in the 60s or 70s, with one, one gentleman there who was easily pushing 100. You make, you make a very interesting observation, which I never even thought of in this context. The vast majority, if not all, the children who went to that synagogue that my mother grew up in are today probably even more religious than their parents. I spoke about the polarization earlier. They're all devoutly religious people. A very strong sense of, of, of their identity. They raise religious families. Phenomenal, because they grew up in an environment where it was a young, vibrant community because the elderly were dead because they'd been murdered by Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to finish off on this negative point about no, Hitler, but no. I'm just giving you a bit of an insight into how 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 much this influences the way you're raised when you when you when you when you're raised in a home and in a community where where these these type of experiences influence uh, influence you so much. It's a lot to a lot to think about there. I think we should probably. Uh wrap this up this has gone on much longer than i think either of us anticipated it was going to i've been enjoying it it's been fantastic as you can probably tell. <laughs> i mean I've, i didn't really want to have to say much and i've been you know very lucky to just sit here and just listen to you tell stories and talk about theology and philosophy and all kinds of aspects of life in and around judaism and not just religious um if is there anything you'd want to say as a sort of a closing statement or maybe something thought provoking before we before we wrap up I touched on it earlier. We, we, we all have purpose. Serve it. Don't sit at home on your phone. It's, it's, there is so much opportunity to do good, um, practical good, to really make a difference. Um, there's a famous story um, of 
um, um, a congresswoman, Shirley Kisholm, I think her name is pronounced. I don't even know how to pronounce her name. Although I've passed a park in New York, which is um, is uh, dedicated to her um, so many times. But um, she, African-American, was elected to Congress, I think, in, the, in 60, 1968, perhaps. She was ostracized by the white men of Congress, and they dumped her on an agricultural committee while she was a congresswoman for representing um, the, the, the diversity of, 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 of New York City and made to sit on, on, on committees where conversations about Idaho potatoes, which had no bearing on her influence in Congress and what she wanted to impact for her constituents. And she came to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She was an African-American woman, came to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she was devastated. She was really upset by the restrictions. And the Rebbe said to her, I, I, I know that you're very upset. And she said, well, that's a bit of an understatement. But, you know, I'm devastated by the way I've been um, sidelined uh, uh, side by, by these white men. Um, and the Rebbe said to her, do you know that America has a massive amount of food surplus? You can use your position on the Agricultural Committee to make a difference for poor people in big cities. And she says that this light went off in her mind, like, wow, opportunity, taking this negativity that I was feeling and seeing it as an opportunity. One of the most revolutionary things in the last 40, 50 years in America that has fed poor people is a program called the Food Stamps Program. She initiated the Food Stamps Program as a result of that meeting. And she, in her retirement speech, she, she, she paid homage to the Rebbe for challenging her to take that negativity, negativity to something positive. I'll finish off with that. That's yeah, to, take, to, take, to take, stop sitting, sitting on your phone at home, change the world in a small way. And just take, take some Idaho potatoes and feed, feed the poor cook, and help everyone. Cook, cook them up and make the world a better place. Yeah, exactly. Make some latkes, for God's sake. Ex absolutely. Yeah. This has been absolutely fantastic. I... I like I say, I could just sit here and listen to you all day. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Lewis, and thank you as well to Slack City for furnishing us with this lovely studio to record our, our first, hopefully first of many podcasts, and I would love to love to talk to you again at some point. Thank you so much for coming. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Aaron, for the opportunity.